Welcome to the Student Ministry Podcast by Lifeway. I am excited to be here with you who are listening and with you, producer Nathan, as we kick off another week of podcasting. Yeah, it's going to be a great week of podcasts. This is fantastic. (laughs) I agree. We have an incredible guest. All right. As we get rolling on the podcast, I want to give you just a little bit about where we're going this month of February. So uh, I'm super excited about our plan here, and it is to introduce you and help you get to know some black leaders in the ministry space. And I'm super excited about this direction. And I think we have an incredible group of people that you will enjoy, learn from, be encouraged, be challenged by uh, over the next several weeks. And I think the best place to start is with my good friend, Jeff Wallace. Jeff serves as the chief strategic officer for Student Leadership University. You're the CSO, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I got a new title. That just means that um, our team can, I guess, put a little bit more responsibility on me. You know, that's all. So, <laughs> man, anytime you get the word chief in the title, I think yeah. I think that's a good that's a good thing. Well, our, our COO, Nikki Hoffpower, she didn't want to be the only chief on the team, I think. So. <laughs> they had to get they had to get another one. needed an additional chief on the team. So I think I just joined. I, I, I got drafted in by her as well as our vice president, Britt Crow. So I love it. I love it. Well, man, I want to first of all, just say thank you for being willing to come on. Um, you're one of the first people I thought of. Uh, when we wanted to kind of carve out this month and focus mm-hmm. in on black leaders, specifically in the ministry space. Yep. Uh, and so I appreciate you being willing to come on. Um, and I would love to just for people to get to know you. I know there yeah. are many in the audience yeah. <laughs> that say, man, we've had Jeff speak at a lift tour or we've heard Jeff at Youth Pastor Summit, SLU and all the things that you do. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be some familiar familiarity there as well. But they know you right now. Yeah. And so <laughs> to really understand how a person leads now, we got to rewind a little bit and yes, go back. And so. Man, let's let's start early on. Tell us how you grew up and and let's just kind of trace your story yeah. uh, through the years. Well, well, man, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you, Ben, and producer Nathan for having me there and uh, having me here. Excuse me. And uh, so I'm excited. But, you know, I was born in Buffalo, New York, man. And so uh, I am unapologetically still a Bills fan. It was a hard end of the year. But I became a Bills fan because my dad took me and my brother, I'm the youngest of four, uh, to Bills games early on when we were little. But he would only take us on the second half of the season when it was super cold. And my mom could never (laughs) understand why. And it was because my dad was like, I want my boys to be real fans. And, you know, I'm just thinking now. So that's you got to go and freeze. Yeah. I'm like, that's bad parenting. And so, <laughs> and so, but, yeah, dude, I remember being an Eskimo, just kind of, you know, uh, layered up. But we went to the game, man. That was the thing. And uh, so, but I guess it worked because all these years later, I'm still a Bills fan. But, man, we moved down uh, when I was young to Atlanta, Georgia. My dad helped open up the Pepsi plant there. He's the uh, warehouse manager there at Pepsi Cola. And, and, uh, and I grew up, Ben, honestly, in a pretty 
you know, traditional two-parent household. You know, my parents are hardworking, middle-class families, man. But uh, my dad was a disciplinarian and my mom was very structured. And so mm. um, my mom was the believer in the family at the beginning. Like she was the rock. Okay you know, of the family for many years. My dad wasn't a believer. And uh, my oldest brother, seven years older than me, I have two sisters in between us. And it wasn't until my seventh grade year that my dad gave his life to Jesus. So all those years, my mom had been praying for my dad. But when we, you guys were in Atlanta, we were in Atlanta. Yes, sir. We were in Atlanta okay. now. And, uh, and, and so she'd been praying for him and he gave his life to the Lord. And man, when he did, Oh, he did. Like my dad was like in the church. He helped, you know, mm. start a men's ministry of a uh, church. I'll tell you about here in a sec. But uh, man, so we did. We grew up in a very uh, structured home, um, loving home. And uh, my mom, uh, you know, when she was growing up, Ben, she only wanted to be valedictorian of her class. Right. Like that okay. was the only thing that she aspired to be. In. And she's always kind of been a strong component of education. So like growing up, honestly, man, C's were F's in the Wallace household. (laughs) Like She was not having it, not even on our progress report. Like, you know, she just was like, nah, nah, I'm not feeling it. And so, uh, but it comes from where she was as a student, you know, in high school, all she wanted to do was be valedictorian. And uh, my grandmother and grandfather, uh, during my mom's 10th grade year, going into her 10th grade year, they decided that they wanted my mom to be a part of the new uh, integration of schools in Savannah, Georgia. My mom was living in Savannah. My mom and dad okay. actually met in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, they were dating. My mom and dad dated from ninth grade all the way through high school and got married. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, man. They were really high school sweethearts. And so, uh, so 10th grade year, my mom at this point had never made a beat in her life. And all she wanted to do is she wanted to be valedictorian of her school. Her and a girlfriend wanted to go to Howard university, which is a historical black college in Washington, Mm -hmm. DC. And they wanted to be lawyers. They wanted to be attorneys. My mom and her best friend, they wanted to have their own black uh, female law firm. Like that was her goals and her dreams. So fast forward, 10th grade, my grandmother and grandfather wanted my mom to be a part of the integration of the school district. And um, reluctantly, my mom did it. And uh, she shared the story with us. How It was horrible. I mean, it was bad. They had a bus convoy, uh, excuse me, a police convoy that, uh, you know, had a convoy with their buses to the school. It was rowdy. Uh, you can imagine mm-hmm. that everybody didn't welcome them to the school. Um, yep. And so my dad actually, fun fact, my mom asked my dad if he was going to do it. She was telling us. And my dad was like, nah. So my dad <laughs> stayed at the all black school because he had a good little side hustle where he was selling moonshine to some of his teachers. And so he had a little <laughs> side hustle. I was no lie, man. So my dad was like, nope. I'm staying. <laughs> so you go to, you know, you be a, a trailblazer. I'm going to stay here to keep my side hustle. And yeah. uh, so, so my mom gets there. It was bad, um, Ben, mm. to be honest. And, uh, and so one of the things that would happen is her teachers would take markers, black markers, and mark out uh, her right answers on tests or quizzes, and they would mark her correct answers incorrect. 
And my grandmother would try to get meetings with the school. Obviously, that was not happening. She finally forced her way, her, my, my grandmother, my grandfather finally forced their way up to the school and uh, almost got arrested because of it. And uh, the administration basically said to my grandmother, my grandfather, like, hey, if y'all don't like it, you can go back to your your school. And uh, so, you know, my grandmother went and let my mom quit. Uh, so she graduated from the school. Needless to say, she did not graduate valedictorian. Uh, so there was a little bit of sadness and depression there when she yeah. graduated. So the only thing she knew to do was to marry my dad. So my mom and dad, <laughs> <laughs> since she didn't graduate valedictorian, she married my dad about two and a half, three weeks after high school. So that's uh, a good trade off. Yeah, like looking back. Yes. Yeah. Good trade off. So let's fast forward now. Um, again, traditional home, loving parents. My dad was disciplined, airy dad, like, you know, teaching how to be a man, take responsibility, ownership, accountability, all of that. Going into my eighth grade year in high school, uh, well, it was high school because I didn't go to middle school. My my uh, school system went from elementary all the way up to seventh, and then eighth grade started high school when okay. I was coming up. We were sub-freshmen, which it's kind of demoralizing. What a terrible name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sub, we sub-freshmen. Sub yeah, we weren't even good enough to be freshmen. We were subbies. We were sub that's what they called us. That's terrible. So, bro, I just got a, a new Huffy bike uh, that Christmas. And I was super excited because me and my friends, we had kind of like our Huffy bike game. And so we were all excited. We were going to be riding our bikes together uh, to Southwest Academy, which is a local high school. Going into that summer, my mom pulls me aside and she says, hey, uh, I want you to be a part of this new program called the M to M program. It was minorities to majorities. And I was like, what is that? And she's like, you know, I want you to go to this school on the north side of town called Lakeside. And I was like, why? And uh, because to get there, you have to get on a bus. You go to the school, you transfer buses, go to the, it take like about an hour and a half, two hours to get mm. to school. And my mom looked at me and I'll never forget this, uh, Ben. She said, she says, hey, um, if I send you to Southwest DeKalb High School, you're going to have a single story perspective. And I don't want you to have that. She said, because, Jeffrey, the world is not all black. And uh, and I want you to learn how to see the heart of a man before you see the face of him. And mm -hmm. um, and so so I, I was like, no, nah, I don't care about all that. I just want to ride my bike. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, because you're here eighth grade. Yeah, so. I'm eighth grade. I don't yeah. understand all of that. And uh, and so fast forward, Gilda to Lakeside, man, it's the first time I ever heard the N word. It's the first mm -hmm. time that, you know, I ever really kind of experienced, you know, kind of racism and all that stuff. But my 10th grade year, you know, which was kind of cool because it was my mom's 10th grade year that she went to the school. Um, yeah. I met a guy by the name of Mark Jackson. I'll never forget it, man. And we were uh, sitting together at lunch. And uh, and we started just talking and we realized we had so much in common, Ben. And and it was really cool because we spent the rest of that 10th grade year, that school year, kind of learning about each other's cultures. And mm. he would always ask me, he says, hey, are all black people this way? And I'm like, dude, no. And I say, hey, are all <laughs> white people this way? And he's like, uh, no. And so it was <laughs> really, really cool. We became the best of friends and stayed that way throughout our time in high school. 
Um, mm. And then my senior year in high school, I became the first African-American SGA president our school ever had. So That's that was awesome. cool. one of my my uh, claim to fame. You know, we celebrated uh, Black History Month for three months uh, because <laughs> what we did. Yeah. January, we prepared. February, we celebrated. And March, we reflected. And uh, mm-hmm. and so but it was really, really cool. That experience from what my mom um, went through as a high schooler prepared her to walk with me as I went through my experience as a high schooler for the journey I'm on right now, because my my mom and my dad as well, but primarily my mom um, really helped me understand that uh, God's God's going to use me to help be a bridge to bring two worlds together. And I think when I look at my journey in ministry and life and where I am right now, I can truly, truly say it started with a decision my mom and dad made back when I was going Mm. to the eighth grade. Man, have you ever asked your mom about sending you like, has there been a longer conversation in adulthood? Mm. Oh, yeah. Where where you said, Mom, after what you experienced in the 10th grade. Yeah. How much of that played into you having me do this as an eighth grader? Mm-hmm. What was that in adulthood? What yeah. was that conversation like? Yeah. You know, brother, I'll take it a step further. I actually had a conversation with my mom and my grandmother before she passed. And oh, wow. It was, man, I tear up sometimes. When I think about it, man. It was really, really cool um, to hear my grandmother just really believe that there was something special about my mom. And then hear my mom just saying that, yeah, and I just thought there was something special about you. And um, and when you see the generational consistency of a praying family, you know, a family that stays connected to God and 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 wanting to not just be connected to God, but wanting to be on the on what we hear a lot of people say the right side of history or just a part of history. You know, that was very much. My, my um, grandmother's perspective and my mom, she looks at all the things that, you know, um, that I'm doing right now. And she said that she did not think it was going to be to this magnitude, but she mm. did feel like, you know, it was going to be something uh, very significant that I would be doing in my life. And so she just is so proud. And she said for every heartache uh, that she experienced from her 10th through 12th grade year, she said the Lord restored it 10 times over as she has watched me matriculate through life and, and, uh, and ministry. So yeah, man, it's been a sweet, we had some sweet adult conversations. Yeah. And man, there's a very real, like she walked through extreme Mm -hmm. difficulty so that one day her kids could, could follow that. Yeah. Could exactly. could could maybe make a similar transition. Could mm-hmm. could be exposed to things that she felt were were important. Yeah, and it's cool to see the grandmother to mother yeah. to a yeah. similar thought process. Yeah, yeah. And man, I, what about through that time? Because you mentioned uh, still not at the beginning of segregation. Many years later, mm-hmm. you still experienced some of the hardship people racial slurs using the n-word hatefulness to to you yeah were there moments that you and mom could have conversations about because 
in a school setting, maybe she understood yeah. exactly like yeah. yeah, the same things happened to me kind of deal. Yeah, that's a great question, Ben. You know, she would always remind me to keep the main thing, the main thing, number one, and to know who I who I was as a person, that I am a child of God. And so it's not what people call you, it's what you respond to and what you believe about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so she was, my mom, I, I was always a very affirming um uh, an encouraging mother who always brought us back to the truth of our identity in Christ. Like that was always kind of, you know, mom, I can't believe so-and-so said this or this, you know, I'm upset or mad. And she's like, she were here, but then she'd be like, okay, I got it. But we're, let's deal with facts versus your feelings. What does God say about you? You know, and, and his views of you are far more important than anybody else's views because his views of you is, is who you really are. So she would always bring me back and my siblings as well. When we experienced that, she would always bring us back to that place. And, and, and it really helped me Ben as moments as I got older and matured in my faith and, and encounter even as an adult in ministry encounter moments of racism or prejudice um, or discrimination to kind of, okay, let me keep the main thing, the main thing. And my mom would always remind us that um, the reason why she sent sent us, because it wasn't just me that went, it was my my siblings that went as well, but they were on their way out. So they didn't they didn't go right. through that that long. They were on their way out of high school. And um, but but for her, it was always about, hey, you know, I want you to remember to take a step back whenever you're feeling something, you encounter something. And she would always press in like, you don't ever, leaders never respond out of emotionalism. They respond out of the wisdom of knowing who they are and then praying for wisdom and discernment, asking God to know how to respond. And mm-hmm. and I've just always been that way. Even when it has not been popular to a lot of my friends who feel like, hey, you need to respond quicker or harsh, more harsh, or more on this side of a topic or issue. So, yeah, man, she always kept that before us. Yeah. Man, I want to talk for a little bit about your dad, too. Yeah. And just what it was like watching him come to know the Lord Mm. and then how the family was kind of a before and after like because i think you said seventh grade is when he came to know the lord when you were in seventh grade when when i was in seventh grade and so you know um man it was crazy ben because you know my dad was always present he was always a provider you know and everybody he was in the streets you know with his friends not doing anything crazy but just he just wasn't a believer you know and so we would get up and go to church by ourselves with my mom and I'll never forget coming back. Uh, we had a uh, field trip to this place called Rock Eagle. And we were gone for a couple of uh, days. And I came back and my mom was like, Jeffrey, guess who gave their life to Jesus? And I'm like, who? She said, your dad. And I said, I remember saying, who's dad? And so <laughs> <laughs> I never forget. And she just kind of, I remember my mom, like it's yesterday, I remember her face like, well, you only had one father, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and so, um, but she shared his journey. If he just went to this church, just things were going rough for him at work and just in life. And, you know, uh, a friend of his um, from work invited him to this men's Bible study and reluctantly he went. 
but then he enjoyed it. And unbeknownst to my mom, my mom didn't even know he was going to his Bible study. He would just kind of, oh, wow. yeah, I'm going to hang out. Squirrel was his name, his buddy. I don't even know Squirrel's real name, but you know, <laughs> I just grew up with Squirrel. Anyway, yeah. shout out to Squirrel. And uh, but, uh, <laughs> but him and he would just have me and Squirrel were going to hang out after work. So my mom didn't think anything of it. She was like, fine. Is this something he was just doing on his own? Like, I've got to explore this on my own kind of thing. I have to explore this faith thing on my own. And mm-hmm. um, and so one day he said, hey, because we were going to a church already. And my dad's like, hey, um, he put on Squirrel and said, Squirrel invited us to this church. Uh, would you come and visit? So my mom was like you're going you know and so and so he was like yeah so and i think in his mind actually i don't think i know because we talked about it uh before he passed um that he kind of knew that day was the day that he was going to really give his life to the lord he wanted my mom to be a part of it mm-hmm. so he invited my mom to the church it was a men's sunday and uh and he walked down man gave his life to jesus and my mom she said you could have just knocked her over at that moment. She was floored. And there was this shift that took place, Ben, in my dad, um, where he was still a disciplinarian, um, hard nose, accountability, no excuses. But he did it with the posture of being a, a, a Christ follower. And so mm. I don't know if I subconsciously just respected him a lot more. You know, because his tone was, he has a deep baritone voice. And uh, so his tone was still harsh. But I don't know, I guess because I knew he had, you know, given his life to Jesus subconsciously, I was just like, okay, you know, I'll get on these, I'll get on the top of this roof with this raggedy ladder and clean the gutters and almost kill myself. (laughs) And uh, and so it just feels better now, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But man, my dad is an all in person. He's always been that way. So he got involved, man. And, and there was um, there was a church split. That's a long story. But the pastor of the the church that he gave his life to, because he was loyal to this pastor, started a new church. And my dad was adamant that we were going to go with this pastor as he started this new mm-hmm. church. And um, and he was involved in the men's ministry. Started this ministry at our church um, back home that I was a part of for 23 years called jo- the Joshua Men, and man, he just was a mentor and a uh, and a friend and a father to hundreds of men throughout his his life, man. And it was so crazy when he passed. He passed about 11 years ago, and when he passed, there was this long processional of men. That came in, they were suited up to pay their respects that were part of the Joshua man. It had to be, and I'm not even exaggerating, at least a hundred men that mm-hmm. processioned in to pay their respects to my dad. And you just saw the impact that he had made on the life of of so many husbands and fathers and and sons and uncles and nephews. I mean, it was just amazing. And so he he was all in. He became, you know, yeah. an elder at a church, man, and um, and just a very dedicated and committed follower of Jesus Christ. He he was my hero, um, you know, as a dad uh, before he gave his life to Jesus. But he really became um, a big hero to me 
um, as I watched him transform his life as a Christ follower. What about like if you could point to one thing that you've carried into your own fathering of your boys. <laughs> yes. Well, I, is, is it, is yeah, it the voice? Is it the voice that you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did, what did you take? Boys. I'm sure a lot of things, yeah, but I got three boys and I get it now of having, you know, cause here's the truth, Ben, obviously, you know, um, one of the things my dad would always teach me and my brothers that this world doesn't owe you anything. And as a black man in America, you're going to have to, be twice as good and work twice as hard to just get halfway uh, in the mind of being able to uh, be worthy of any position. Like that was kind of my what my dad would always instill in us. And so for my boys, it was always the same way. It's like, hey, you know, you need to keep your nose clean. You got to be twice as good, work twice as hard just to get half the recognition. And so, yeah, I was a I, I was very much. Uh, disciplinarian, uh, raising <laughs> my boys. Uh, I would like to think, um, if you ask my children, they would, because we've had plenty of conversations, they would say somewhat otherwise, because uh, they knew saved Greg Wallace. So their granddaddy, oh, when it came to his grand boys, he was a mushy dude. Like, I'm like, where was this? But, they um, didn't know moonshine Greg. No, they didn't know moonshine Greg. They, <laughs> they, they knew pops. They knew pops. Yeah. Um, but I, I've been a disciplinarian. I won't let my kids make excuses. And I'm very um, intentional having conversations about what it means to be a black man in America. And but but also a compassionate Christ follower, you know, first and foremost. And so yeah. that I think I would say. I took from my dad and uh, and I'm grateful for all that he showed me verbally and non-verbally. Yeah, man. What are um, like, what would you point to as because you, you specifically like this is what it means to grow up as a black man in mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. as you with whatever you're willing to share? Yeah, I sure. Wanna, yeah, because this is, you know, family conversations and with your boys and stuff. Yeah. But what are some things that you remember like, hey, as a black man, mm-hmm. this is different. Yeah. Maybe even some conversations that connect with your friend Mark when you yeah. guys were in high school and yeah. how that shaped those okay sons. Yeah. This is this is why this is different. And this these are some particular things that you have to be aware of as as a black young man. Yeah. Well I think a couple things, you know, number one, um, when it came to dating, you know, we wanted our children always to love whoever they want to love and date. You know, um, it didn't happen. Black, white, Latino, Native American, Hispanic. We didn't care. But but I had to have real conversations with my kids about, hey, if you're going to date, you know, a white girl, then you need to know that there is that may not be very receptive to her entire family. So you guys need to have that conversation. And uh and my middle son, CJ, he really experienced that in a bad way where two of his heartbreaks weren't mm. from a young woman. It was from a young woman's father who was like, no, you can't date my daughter. Um, not because of anything else, but, you know, you're black. And so yeah. just having those conversations like, hey, you know, well, understanding that's 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 one person, not every person. You still continue to 
be open to love, but just know that this is just the realities of it. So you're going to have to have with that young lady a deeper conversation if you guys are going to enter into, you know, some type of relationship. So that's number one. Number two, when I was teaching them how to drive, it was more than just how to parallel park or the three point turn. We had to have the conversation of if you get pulled over by the police, here are some rules. Always mm -hmm. try, if possible, to park in a well-lit and preferably populated area. Number two, go ahead and have your driver's license and your insurance, you know, in your hand and you keep them in your hands on the, with your hands on the steering wheel, nine o'clock, three o'clock. You know, number three, it is always yes, sir, no, sir. Res repeat what you're about to do, sir. I am about to hand you my driver's license. Is it okay if I do that right now with my left hand? You know, like, and and they were, those are hard, Ben, to be honest. And they really, all three of them kind of responded to it differently. Like, really, I think Cameron, my youngest, he'd already heard the conversation before. So he was prepared. But Jay, my oldest, he was like, that's stupid. You know, CJ was like, man, really? And then Cameron's like, oh, don't worry, Dad, I will. You know, um, and so those types of conversations we had to have, um, understanding the importance of education and, you know, um, the, the value of education. You know, I would tell our, my boys, it's better to have and not need than need and not have. Like you want to get that degree. I'm proud of, you know, my oldest two, they graduated from Kennesaw State University doing well. Cameron's doing well at University of Florida. I want them to understand the value of an education um, because one, that's something nobody can take away from you. But then two, you want to make sure that you're always expanding your mind um, to to go deep um, in, in all types of level of 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 intellect but then the third well, you've thing, exampled that too like yeah. you you have been a person for as long as i've known you who has been intentional about educating yourself yeah it in an institution and outside of an institution so yeah, yeah. i mean when yeah. do we when do we get to start calling you doctor hey man listen prayerfully by the time we get to youth pastor summit i will the prayer is that i'm trying to defend do final defense Come on, I need everybody uh, in LifeWay student world to be praying uh, by March you 15th is final defense. And so I'll be Jeff Wallace, Ph.D., you know, after love that. It. So I cannot wait. I cannot wait. And so, I love it, man. Yeah. Well, we'll I hopefully we'll be among the first to. Yes, for sure. Dr. Wallace. Yes, I'll still be. <laughs> but then the last yeah. thing I would say, Ben, for my boys is it was also going back to my mother is teaching my my boys um, not for themselves to have a single story perspective. We purposely raised our children in the suburbs. Our, our My church back home was an inner city, urban area, but we, we wanted them to have a very diverse and eclectic group of friends. Um, and so we wanted our kids to see the world through a wider lens uh, than, um, you know, other African-American friends that they may have had around them. So those are a lot of things that both my mom and my dad and just my own upbringing, how it spilled over into uh, my raising my own children. Yeah. When did you first know, man, I'm going to be in ministry. I'm, I'm going to be a student pastor. Oh, man, man. Sophomore year in Morehouse College. Oh, okay. When I, my, my undergrad degree is in business administration, got a minor in marketing. I was going to Emory Law School 
to become an attorney. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a rich lawyer. This is when, you know, I hope it's okay to say this, but this is when Johnny Cochran got OJ off. And uh, and so <laughs> as a black man. I'm going to be the next Johnny Cochran. <laughs> yes. As a black man, I want to say I believe OJ was guilty. And so, <laughs> so, so but. Let the uh, record show, right? Let the record reflect. <laughs> I have said that before. But anyway, but actually I didn't want to be criminal. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer, honestly. I, I wanted to be the corporate okay. law. Sophomore year, man, in college, the Lord just, I mean, got a hold. I'll never, it was early um, because I turned down three scholarships to go to Morehouse. And my mom and dad, especially my dad, thought that was absolutely stupid. And they said, math is math, you know. And uh, But I wanted the mystique of being a Morehouse man, one of the, in my mm. opinion, one of the most prestigious historical black colleges and all of black, all of the, between all of the black colleges. I wanted that mystique. And, uh, and so I worked in the registrar's office and I worked the four to 12 shift at Blockbuster Video to get myself through <laughs> college. But man, I remember fresh, uh, uh, first semester of my sophomore year, the Lord just spoke to me as clearly as you talking to me right now. It's like, hey, I know you think you're gonna be an attorney, but you're going into ministry. And I was like, no, I'm not. That was my exact response. And like, nah, I'm good. And so yeah. for a year and a half, I ran from my calling. And everything I tried to do, Ben, nothing would work. I was not even getting sniffs of being able to go to law school. Like nothing. All the doors were closing. Um, and it was just like the Lord kept saying, hey, you can run, but my will will be done. And so yeah. probably the latter part of my junior year, early part of my senior year, I realized, okay, God, I'm going to surrender to ministry. And then at this point, I was super frustrated because I'm like, what am I going to do with this business degree? You know, yeah. like, what? Now if, you what, know. Yeah, you know, like, what am I going to do? And so, yeah, man, instead of being a um, rich corporate lawyer, I settled for being a broke youth pastor. <laughs> <laughs> with a business degree <laughs> with a business degree i yeah. like it man yeah. you mentioned that and uh but that's what my undergrad is is in yeah. as well is yeah. is business and i've i've told so many people because you yeah. and i are both in conversations with teenagers yeah. or people mm -hmm. who are, i'm going in the ministry what do i need to do i have often said man don't go to don't get your undergrad in bible or whatever now yeah <laughs> Not to disparage our right. Christian I'm university a, I friends. Touch that <laughs> yeah. Not to disparage that. You can get a great non-religion degree from a Christian university. Mm -hmm. So this isn't about Christian school, non-Christian school. But I have given the advice of, man, go get a, what are you interested in? Mm -hmm. And go yeah. get one of those. Not as a backup plan, but that you are going to learn skills a way to think, a way to process that's going to benefit you in the ministry mm -hmm. by doing something that you're interested in, especially if your plan is to go to seminary. Like if yes. you're going to go to seminary yes. and you're going to do, get your Bible, get your theology, get yeah. your New Testament mm -hmm. in, in seminary and yeah. Hey man, what do you like? You yeah. like marketing? You like engineering? Cool. Well, get an undergrad in that. And yeah take all the benefits from it. Yeah. And you know, what's been good. So, you know, I went from getting that business undergrad 
And then I got a, my, my MDiv, which for me was kind of my Bible degree, right? And yeah. that really kind of helped me. And now, you know, my doctorate is in organizational leadership, which is more, it's, it's broad and narrow too. You know, instead of doing Christian leadership, because I could have done a doctorate in Christian leadership, I want to do organizational leadership just to kind of speak to both the public and private sectors, right? And so, yeah. so yeah, I think it's, I, I agree with you that, you know, and I think that there are, you know, I joke about, man, what am I going to do with it? But I can really say during my tenure as a youth pastor, I have definitely put a lot of what I learned, you know, with that business degree, I've put it into practice in the ministry. So, yeah. Well, especially now, like mm-hmm. knowing what you do at Student Leadership University and the leadership that you that you have there, there are a lot of there are a lot of those conversations that happened. I mean, the same yeah. things happened to me. I used it. I used more than I thought I would as a youth yeah. pastor. And now, mm-hmm. man, I use it just about every day. There's <laughs> something that, yes, there's something that I need to to go find and yep. pull back from the, the recesses of my memory. Yeah, man. So you're, so you're at Morehouse working at Blockbuster. God's yeah. like, Hey, you're not going to be a lawyer. You're going to go to ministry. You're going to go into the ministry. How did that how did that start for you? First church, walk us through like the, yeah, the youth pastor years. So my pastor, uh, my youth pastor, excuse me, my youth pastor growing up, we had been in that church I shared with you that my dad that split, you know, and yeah. um, my dad, we've been there for some years now. And my youth pastor who had been with me since I was uh, 14, 15, he is planted a church. My, the end of my senior year in high school, Okay. So my mom and dad, because we had just developed such a close relationship, my mom and dad uh, started our church, Peace Baptist Church in Decatur with um, my uh, youth pastor, now senior pastor, Tyrone Barnett. Um, okay. And it was it was my mom and dad and, and like 13 other families that started. And he's still there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Still there as the pastor. And- yeah. 30 yeah. years later, man. Yep. Still there. Yeah. And uh, and great guy, man. I love that guy. And uh, and so so, you know, he always would say to me, even when I was going to Morehouse, man, there's just a calling on your life. And I was like, all right, got it. <laughs> I had an aunt who would, you know, say the same. All right, got it. My mom. OK, yeah, great. And uh, and so. For many people, they would say to me over the years, there's something in you. There is something the Lord wants to do with you. And I just was like, yeah. So I'll never forget, man, when um, I was I was coming home, it was late. And I went because I lived in Atlanta, so I'm local, even though I lived off campus uh, and I lived off. I wasn't at home. I would still go home from time to time. And I remember one night, Ben, man, I just. I was just bawling, crying. I'm not ashamed to say it, and uh, but I was just bawling, crying, man. And so it was like I got off work. It's like one thirty in the morning. So I drove to my mom and dad's, and I just curled up in the, like in a fetal position on the couch at my mom and dad's house. My dad came out, was like, "Boy," and he was looking at me. He said, "Did you get kicked out of school?" And I said, "No, sir." And I said, um, "I got to talk to your mom." And so uh, my mom came out and she's like, you know, you okay? And I said, yeah. So I share with them, you know, I really feel like the Lord's calling me into ministry and I just don't know what to do about it. Mm. And my mom, she starts crying. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. 
And uh, he was like, and then so my dad's response, like, so you didn't get kicked out of school, right? And so I was like, (laughs) (laughs) so so we prayed, man, and they talked to me about it. And then they called Pastor Barnett and shared with him, you know, what I shared with them. And then he had set up some time. We met, uh, had a a lunch and just really kind of walked me through it, you know, and Mm. and it was kind of like we had we always had like this Paul Timothy type of relationship. He was always that mentor who was just investing and pouring and directing. And man, honestly, he was the sole discipler in my early ministry formation and, you know, time. Like he was the one that really helped walk me through that. And then, you know, I started off being with like, it was five, five to eight, you know, students and, and our church at that time. And we would just kind of have Bible studies kind of, you know, talking about, you know, uh, what God was doing in our lives and what we want to see for our lives and stuff. And it just kind of grew from there. And, and the I'll never forget, he had told me, he says, hey, I want to send you someplace. And so he sent me to uh, California, the Saddleback, when Doug uh, Fields was doing the Purpose Driven Youth Ministry Conference. Okay. So the very first conference I ever went to was Doug Fields' Purpose Driven Youth Ministry Conference. I still got my signed copy of the book. It's funny. I showed that to Doug and I said, man, you're old. And uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyway, it was there at that purpose driven youth ministry conference. Things just kind of clicked for me. It made sense. Now, mind you, in the black community, the idea of a youth pastor, it was still very, very new. And there was okay. no. So what year are we talking about? We're talking this? about 90. Oh, gosh, but you're going to let everybody know. Hold on. We're talking about 95, 96, 97. Okay. You know, and so I would say probably more 96, 97 and 98 is when this is is happening. Yeah. So late 90s, the environment in the black church is youth ministry is still kind of a new. Yeah, man. We had. Yeah, we had Sunday school. You know, we had Bible bowls. We had, you know, the true we did the true love weight stuff. But there was still just having you had youth leaders. You didn't really have a youth pastor. You didn't have teen church. Again, you had okay. Sunday school. Uh, you didn't have small group. You had yeah. Sunday school, you know. Okay. And so it was just a very new idea. So when I went to the Purpose Driven Conference, after a couple of years of just kind of being there, um, man, it just opened my eyes to a lot. But I hadn't seen anybody that looked like me that was doing what they were doing at Saddleback. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, the only thing now, now here's where the business kind of comes in. You know, the only yep. thing I knew to do was to kind of try to work it and contextualize it and market in such a way where it was, um, it was ministry that was relevant for an African-American context. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of newness, a lot of trial and error, a lot of beta testing. Um, you know, we didn't have Saddleback Sam. We had Decatur Doug, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, because you can't just I mean, this is true in any context, right. but especially what you're describing. Copy what's happening over here, paste it over here, yeah. especially when the idea of youth ministry is still kind of new. That probably wouldn't have gotten you very far had mm-hmm. it been a copy paste attempt. Yeah, 
Yeah. Even the way the discipleship process. And so it, it was for me, it was a it was early on. I, I wanted to accept a challenge because I'm a very competitive person. And then I asked myself the question. Here was a million dollar question after I kind of digested the book and some other things. I said, I want to know for myself, what does a sixth grader look like as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ as a senior in high school? And so that became, without me even thinking about it, Ben, that became the the model of or the litmus test. Let me say it that way. That became a litmus test of like, okay, what is the markers that I want for a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, ninth grader, and these milestones? And that was how the strategy that was birthed and developed from our student ministry, that's really where it came from, you know, okay. and uh, of just wanting to see what a sixth grade looked like as a 12th grader. So your pastor obviously had a vision for this because mm-hmm. he said, hey, I want to send you somewhere. Yes. So that's there was something in his that that God had put in his heart, his vision for the church that, hey, we need to do something more for teenagers here than perhaps mm-hmm. what is happening yeah. at this moment. Yeah, because simultaneously, I can tell you what it was simultaneously. I mean, we were we've always been SBC. So we've always been Southern Baptist uh, Church. But what I appreciate about my pastor was he was always looking at creative other creative places where we can learn as a church early on, a young church learn, and we would learn how to, you know, chew the meat, spit out the bones, meaning, you know, okay, theologically and doctrinally, we may not align here, but what are you creatively and innovatively doing to engage your audience? And so he took us to uh, this guy, Tommy Barnett uh, at Phoenix First Assembly, and they would do like this pastors and leaders school. And dude, it was probably one of the most creative things I ever seen. They would do these illustrative messages where you had angels flying over your head and they did a full live nativity scene with real animals. The first time I ever seen that. And and what his thing was is, man, what what would it look like for a black church to to use some level of creativity and innovation like this in our context? So we were getting things from different places like that. And it was it was him exposing us early on as a exposing us early on as a as a as a team, a small little team and smaller church and and, yeah. and different things. And those were some great years, bro. Like it really was some really cool years and cool moments. So was he seen in the black church community? Was he seen as kind of a, a pioneer? Oh, in yeah. a lot of in a lot of respects with those mm-hmm. kind of things. Yes, sir. He was. And he, you know, served as president of the African-American Fellowship for the SBC. And and he he's been a mentor um, uh, for many black pastors uh, mm-hmm. in the SBC. And what was really amazing is very quickly. The reason why we were able to do ministry so effectively, in my humble opinion, for 23 plus years uh, is because the Lord used us simultaneously to influence both, you know, our colleagues for adult church, you know, for him and then for a youth church for myself. We began to now, you know, um, have other churches come into our church to want to see, hey, how are y'all doing children and youth ministry? Mm-hmm. Hey, how are you doing outreach and discipleship for adult ministry? And so we both kind of became uh, the the leaders or, or uh, pioneers in the 
and the Southern Baptist Convention as it related to, you know, black church. It was kind of like my pastor and then the late, uh, great, amazing uh, uh, Dr. Michaela from um, from Green Forest Church, mm-hmm. Baptist Church in, in Decatur. And then you have Fred Luter down there in, in New Orleans. And so these guys were the leading heads that were kind of taking off. And then for me, I was kind of like the Lone Ranger uh, of youth ministry. So in the SBC world, as far as African-American youth pastors and stuff, I was kind of one of few. I was almost like one okay. of one. And uh, but the Lord kind of used what we saw to begin to mentor others along the way. What do you think it was in black church culture that maybe I don't know if delayed mm. youth ministry is the right word That's a great or question. why it why it didn't catch on? like it had in other Southern Baptist churches or even, I mean, non-Southern Baptist churches at that time, like Saddleback and other places that are doing these things. What do you think in the black church culture kind of delayed the response to that? It's a great question. Well, I don't know if delayed is the right word, but no, no, it actually is. It is good. And it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, historically Ben, you got to remember even during slavery time, the black pastor was always seen as the pillar and the voice of the black community doing those Mm -hmm. Sunday services, you know, when the slaves would gather around, you know, on the, on the front lawn of their master's house, they would always have the, the black pastor that was there, you know, the master and the, the, the pastor was still a slave, but they would stay standing side by side. There would be, you know, some passages that the slave master would to, he would, read and and isogeet text and and uh you know yeah. and uh uh have a little bit of false theology there but it was always <laughs> the black pastor who was the voice uh to the slaves and he was the voice of the community he was very respected authoritative posi- uh, uh position he was always mm-hmm. telling the slaves hey you know um we shall overcome like you know yeah. You know, we will get through this. And and so historically, that role has been seen in our community as an exclusive solo prominent role. And as the years progress and you've seen even with the rise of the civil rights movement, you know, that um, took place, it was always black pastors who was the leading voice uh, trying to push the envelope of equality and equity and and diversity and inclusion. And uh, and so I think it just was embedded in the culture that there was one pastor and it was the senior pastor who has always been the voice of the people, the broad scope mm-hmm. of the people. And then there were subgroups up under there, but there was always one pastor. And so the idea of having a youth pastor was a little bit of a struggle because it yeah. initially, just that word pastor initially would be seen as a, an, a seniority authoritative figure. And in the black church, there's only one pastor and that's the senior pastor. Okay. So in those years, I. Uh, you have to, I'm sure, be very careful mm-hmm. because the Lord's given you more influence and mm-hmm. people are coming to you talked about how people are coming to both of you mm-hmm. from a pastoral and a youth pastor perspective from the black church community and saying, how are you guys doing these things? How can we implement it? I'm sure that along the way, you have to be very careful and and cognizant of I don't need to, to over or even be 
seen as potentially overstepping the leadership role that is yeah. traditional and cultural in this moment. Yeah. Well, you know, to steal a, you know, John Maxwell phrase, that's why everything rises and falls on leadership. I have to credit, honestly, being my pastor for that. He was never a territorial uh, mm -hmm. guy. He never um, felt threatened by me. He actually was one who was always platforming and, and pushing and, and even encouraging his senior pastor colleagues to have me come in and speak to, you know, their children and youth group leaders. And, yeah. uh, and, and so that helped in that, that, um, and being able to walk through that because of the fact that you're right. Um, uh, you had to walk very carefully with that. That wasn't the story of other guys that I knew, um, that were in ministry and wanting to do youth ministry and be seen as a youth pastor. Many people in the black church were called youth directors mm. and, uh, and not youth pastors. So I, I want to, I'm going to skip ahead a couple steps in your story that, okay. we, that I, I, I don't, I want to hit a couple things, but yes, since sir. we're right here on the, yeah. on this church staff and pastor part of your story. Mm -hmm. So you served as the youth pastor there. Eventually, you served as the executive pastor there and mm -hmm. kind of the, the right hand man. Yep. What was it like then to get the phone call from Student Leadership University and Brent? <laughs> because th this is a place yeah. in a church that your father had helped start and mm -hmm. helped plant. Yeah. Original families. You became the youth pastor. You mm -hmm. became the executive pastor. And was supposed My to be the next senior pastor. That's what I was about. My yeah. only assumption is that there is a clear ha passing of the torch that's yeah. going to take place at some point. Yeah. Talk about the wrestle of walking away from that Man. to enter into. Uh, I'm going to pull a statement that you made early mm -hmm. on in our conversation. Mm -hmm. You believe that God has shaped you uniquely to be able to be a bridge builder to different mm -hmm. cultures and different types of people. Yeah. And certainly what you're doing now it, mm -hmm. it, at student leadership university fits that. Yeah. But I, I want to press into that transition moment. Yeah. And when you, cause you and Brent were friends, like yep. you knew that like that relationship was already there. Yeah. Man, how hard was it to leave? How hard was it to have a conversation with your pastor? Like walk us through that transition moment and how God really showed up there. Buddy, that was tough. You're right, man. I just had transitioned as executive pastor and uh, man, and and fun fact, I just got my own office with a bathroom in it. So that's how much I had arrived. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, that's yeah, the moment, right? That there. was the moment. But yeah, I, you know, um, it was tough. So maybe about eight to 10 years prior to this moment, Ben, I started working and speaking a lot of our convention things and denominational things and uh, um, working with a lot of um, predominantly white organizations and camps and stuff. And so the Lord had already started working with me on just kind of, hey, here's some opportunities to be salt and light on both ends of the aisle and both ends of, I don't say aisle, but both sides of the bridge. <laughs> I say it that way. Um, and so, so, but up until that point, I had turned down a lot of job offers from denominational leaders and everything like that. But when I transitioned to executive pastor, I really sensed the Lord saying, hey, it's time to make a shift in your mind. I thought... Mm. 
or it's time to make a shift, not in my mind, just it's time to make a shift. I thought that was the Lord really impressed upon my heart. Hey, it's time to put student ministry behind you and prepare for this next season of executive pastorate in preparation for senior pastor. So that was kind of in my head. Yeah. So um, I went to an event that you and I, we've spoke at many times uh, with some very prominent, excuse me, SBC pastor, uh, youth pastors that I was speaking at. And, um, and I had some friends that were there from another organization that wanted me to come on staff uh, with them. And I didn't even see Brent. Brent was speaking at this event as well. And uh, and uh, he had came in later. He called and just said, hey, brother, I heard you speaking. How is it? You know, miss you, love you, praying for you. And that was it. This was in April. I'll never forget this. And um, and so uh, the event was in Destin, Florida. And so we were driving back. I was driving back to Atlanta. And I remember calling my wife and I said, hey, honey, this organization wants us to come and interview there uh, with them this summer. Um, I don't know. I'm not really sensing it. And I jokingly say, Ben, but if SLU ever called, boo, I said, we're moving to Orlando. And she's like, ah, ha, ha. I know how much you love Dr. J and Brent SLU. So that was it. That was April. May comes around, uh, middle of May. Brent and I have been playing phone tag for about a week. And he finally calls and he says, hey, man, um, word on the street is over the last five to eight years, you've turned down every you know, job or, you know, you've, you know, everybody's coming knocking and you've like, nah, nah, nah. So I just figured, you know, I get in line, you know, but just let me, and he's just let me down gently. But he's like, you know, what would it look like, you know, for you to join our team? And so, you know, of course I'm going to give the Christian answer. I said, well, let me pray about it. And, uh, that's right. And so I get off with him, call my wife immediately. and was like, you would not believe who just called me. And so, uh, she even said, she said, Brent and SLU. I said, he called you first. And so she was like, no. <laughs> she said, I've already packed yeah. my bags. <laughs> and so, so fast forward, I, you know, I told Brent, I said, man, I only have this window. The summer is a crazy summer. He was like, I'll take it. So Quo and I, my wife, we went down, we met with him. He flew in from Israel, put a lot of pressure on me. He flew from Israel to Orlando just to meet with me. And I was like, dude, I can't tell you no. Now I'm thinking to myself. And uh, yeah, that's right. But I brought my wife, Ben, to throw her under the bus. My plan was I was going to say, Brent, I would love to be a part of the team, but my wife doesn't want to leave or uh, leave Atlanta. So, you know, happy wife, happy life. I got to stay. So this was during the, the year this was was during the night, the post nightclub shooting in Orlando. And, um, okay. and so we were we were just doing a little prayer walk downtown Orlando and just praying for the city. And um we get back to our hotel room. I go to the bathroom, come out. My wife's sitting in the bed. She's crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she says, I really feel like and sense this is where the Lord wants us to be. And I was like, yo, no, I brought you here so I could throw you under the bus. And <laughs> backfired on you. So we pray. So I'm be honest. This was mid-January. I waited probably about three weeks to talk to my pastor. I just, I couldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, so finally, and I didn't, and he was traveling a lot too. And I was like, Pastor, I really need to talk to you, but I need to do it face to face. And so um, he, we finally met. And I'm beyond, I mean, I boohoo like a, a baby, bro. Like I was just like, you know, I really feel and sense that, you know, I know what the church has said, but I really feel like this is the direction that the Lord is, is taking me. 
And without even blinking, bro, like he was super supportive and was like, man, I love you. I'm going to hate to see you go. But, man, you got to do what the Lord's called you to do. And, man, I cried even more. So we prayed. How and freeing that is. It was. It was. Now, our board didn't like it. Um, and so because <laughs> our board wanted to know when I because I had to go and tell because I was sitting on our elder. I was an elder on our church now. And so I had to tell our elders and they were just like, hey, so did pastor's counter offer. Was it not enough? And I was kind of looking kind of dumbfounded. And I was like, counter. I was like, what counter? And so because they're they're men of God, but they're businessmen. And so yeah. they were just like, yeah, the counter. Do we need to up the counter? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't get a counter. So they look at him. I didn't even know I was putting my pass on the spot. They look at him as like, hey, so you just let your number two walk out the door and you didn't even do a counter. And my pastor was just like, no, you know, I really sense this is what the Lord is called. I don't get in in between what the Lord's doing. Hmm. They were not feeling that. And so it was tough. man. <laughs> it was tough. But well, they see it through. They see it through a certain filter that yes. is business yeah. minded. We're on the board of directors. And so that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So it was tough, man. Our church cried, man. I mean, everybody. Um, it was it was really, really hard. Uh, I was commuted from Atlanta to Orlando for a year going back and forth because Cameron was finishing up the eighth grade and we wanted to let him finish. So you can start ninth grade in Orlando. But man, uh, he just blessed. I think what made the transition uh, been the smoothest it could have been was the support I got from my senior pastor. Mm, you know, that's awesome. Yeah, man. I'm glad to hear that. So in, in the middle time there yeah. before the transition, uh, talk about everybody's urban. Yeah. And where the message so yeah for those of you that have not jeff author of that book and uh has been a very significant book yeah in not only the urban community but youth ministries outside the urban community so yeah. talk about where where that came from and yeah. again the theme here of being a bridge builder yeah this book yeah helping people understand hey we have a lot more common in mm -hmm. common than you might think. Yeah. And what's so crazy is I feel like I wrote that book 10 years too early. You know, I feel like it would have been a best selling <laughs> book today. And so, <laughs> so I may need to re republish it or something. But uh, uh, well, I know a publisher. Yeah, so I do too, <laughs> by the way. And so, <laughs> well, so I want to write a book on really helping people understand the context in which I was doing ministry in. And it was designed to talk about some of the social ills that were uh, plaguing a lot of my students in my youth group and how I've been able to minister to them in that. So I had a buddy of mine, um, a, a white youth pastor who was a youth pastor at a very affluent church in Atlanta. And we went and we had coffee together. And I was telling him, his name is Jeff as well, by the way. And so I was like, Jeff, man, I got this idea about this book and I want to talk about the social ills of, you know, some of my students. And I said, and one of the, and I was wrestling through it. And I said, one of the things I want to talk about is fatherlessness, you know, and, uh, and, uh, the impact that absent fathers have had on students in my youth group, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, all of that. So as I'm going through some of the, um, the issues that my students 
have been dealing with, Jeff kind of leans back in his chair and he says, bro, he says, man, I'm struggling with some of the same thing with my kids. And I'm like, no, you're not. And he was like, yeah, actually I am. <laughs> he said, because I said, but Jeff, you have six and seven figure households in your church. And he says, yeah, but the fathers in my church, they travel a lot. And so what they do is they try to substitute stuff for love. So it's like presence, gifts, instead of presence, being there. And he said, mm-hmm. some of the things that you're talking about, your students are struggling with identity issues, fatherlessness and all those things. My kids are dealing with it the same way or dealing with the same thing. And so he was like, so it's not just a Decatur thing. It's also a suburban thing, too, it's, you know. And I just sat back and I was like, really? And so we did, you know, so I said, hey, would you let me kind of beta test and poll your kids on some stuff and, you know, do an anonymous survey? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So I did it. And Ben, if you and I surveyed my students as well, same questions. If you laid the research and the data side by side to one another, it would be identical. You would not know what was students from his church. And what was the students from my church? Mm. Some you could, but not much. And it was startling to me. It was that aha moment to understand that now culture has kind of flattened a little bit where it used to be, you know, remember the days where it was very distinct divisions of youth ministry. You had suburban ministry, which was middle to white, I mean, middle to upper class affluent white uh, churches that was suburban ministry inner city ministry was the you know major metropolitan downtown graffiti hip-hop all of that then you had rural ministry farmlands you know uh, uh, small towns and all that and then urban was everybody else black and brown in that pot well, with the rise of social media things starting to flatten a little bit and you started seeing some of the issues that kids in my community were having, others were having. And so as I did the research, that's where I got the name Everybody's Urban because I thought what I was just dealing with was called urban issues. But it was amazing how culture just kind of, it kind of was a mesh up society with culture. And that was very, very fascinating. That research was fascinating. So I'm not going to put you on the spot about yeah. rewriting and releasing that. I know you're you're in the middle of uh, defending your thesis. <laughs> but I do want to ask you, yeah. I mean, now in mm-hmm. your role at Student Leadership University, mm-hmm. you interface with hundreds, probably mm-hmm. thousands of youth workers yeah. a year. Mm-hmm. Volunteer, bivocational, full-time, yeah. you put them all together and you're you're interfacing with a lot of people. Your premise, proven by data, mm-hmm. hey, our students are dealing with a lot of the same issues. They just come to us in different ways. Yes. But the output is the same. We're still 100%. dealing with identity issues. We're still. So fast forward to now. Yeah. Are you still seeing that? Like, would would that would your premise of everybody's mm-hmm. urban still be accurate today from your interactions with youth pastors in both urban, non-urban, mm-hmm. rural, con- put all the context in there. Yeah. Is it is it still true today? And if it is, is it more so? It's more so for sure, one thousand percent. Especially with Gen Z and millennials, uh, because they they really connect the common cause more so than ethnic. Mm 
differences, right? And so, um, because even when you think about uh, and not totally not a political statement at all. I'm just saying just as a sake of example, you know, even the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement and some of the protests that were uh, were going on when we were dealing with the Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, you know, and George Floyd times, it wasn't just black people that were marching. It was black, white, Latino, Native American. You saw people marching yeah. over in, in uh, Europe. You know, I mean, there is this connectivity to common cause. The, the, the whole sexual identity issues that we're dealing with right now, um, the views on uh, ethics and morality and all that stuff. I think now, and especially with the increase of use and leveraging of social media, um, it has caused this the the generation and culture now to really interface more to with each other than it did back then. So I would suggest that my data would be even if I did the same type of research that the data you know um, would come out even stronger than it did back when I did it uh, you know almost a decade ago. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I th social media, I think it definitely plays a part mm -hmm. in the, the more frequent and widespread sharing of data and personal thought and all of those kinds of things. Um, what are you in your role now at mm -hmm. student leadership university, uh, overseeing youth pastor summit, mm -hmm. the lift tour and, um, and those kinds of things, teaching every year at mm -hmm. student leadership university, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. How would you describe, because the theme that we've kind of been running on mm -hmm. is, hey, I'm a black man. Mm -hmm. My mom made sure that I didn't have a single story perspective. Mm -hmm. And now I am in a place of being a bridge builder yeah, and helping people connect and mm -hmm. serving multiple because it's not just you're not just serving a black audience and serving right. a white audience. There, there right. are multiple bridges to this conversation. Yeah. You are serving yeah. a multitude of people and of diversity in not only race, but ages. Mm -hmm. And so how do you see your role now mm. as kind of like and I, I know you got a you got a lot of ministry left ahead of you. But yeah. this interview is taking place yeah. at this snapshot. Yeah, of yeah, your yeah. Life. <laughs> how do you think? the things that we've talked about mm -hmm. and so many more that we haven't hit yeah have kind of come together mm. for this moment of leadership and influence that you have through SLU man that's a great question ben um i feel like all that i've experienced thus far is has prepared me and is preparing me for even more of what's to come. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, you know, um, obviously people have different views of education. For me, education is, you know, valuable as far as being able to better organize your thoughts, learn how to think a little bit more critically about things, hone up your skills. I think we should always be constant listeners and constant learners. Um, so, so I look at the experiences, the maturity, the education, but the same heartbeat of wanting to be a bridge builder. 
And I feel like, especially with all that's going on in our culture right now, I feel like there needs to be a very consistent voice that can be true as far as seeing things through the lens of scripture and and sane, right? And so um, I really have a desire, Ben, to be a voice of reconciliation. I think at the end of the day, I want to be a voice of reconciliation. I love listening. I love uh, understanding people's perspective and then trying to bring a little bit of clarity on helping debunk a few myths that people may have because their single story perspective drives their their outlook. I firmly believe that proximity dictates response, meaning the closer you are to somebody, the greater understanding you will have to their lived experiences. My doctoral work is a phenomenological study where I'm really talking about the lived experiences of African-American pastors and leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention compared to how the and, and what their lived experiences have been compared to how the Southern Baptist Convention perceives how they're doing in the areas of diversity, equity, mm-hmm. inclusion. And so for me, I truly believe that this is a season of life and ministry where I can be a mentor. Um, I can be a voice, uh, a place of resource um, to really help bring clarity to misunderstanding. I think the reason why there is still so much isolation and division and so much um, negative rhetoric that's being perpetuated in culture is because we are a soundbite driven culture, right? Everything Mm -hmm. is off of clicks and soundbites. And and because of these soundbites, we form a theology that I believe is false, you know? And um, and so I love not necessarily the the broad um, stroke, big room moments to talk. I prefer actually the smaller environments where there's me and a couple of pastors from all walks of life where let's say, hey, let's talk. Because Ben, in my humble opinion, what's missing our culture is a good old fashioned conversation where we can get understanding, right? Everybody is jockeying for position. Everybody's committed to tribes um, or or committed to to organizations or some type of uh, community that they're affiliated with. And we are we're taking secondary and tertiary issues and now they become our primary non-essential issues. Man, if we yeah. really can learn how to have conversations, not to change people's mind totally on things, but to learn how to disagree well, I think is at that moment that we really we really see the beauty of diversity, you know? And so that's kind of where I, I really want to, I really see the Lord moving me and, and using my role uh, at, at Student Leadership University, my partnership and relationship with you guys at Lifeway Students um, and and other um, partners that we have. I think that's where, where my heart really kind of leans toward in this season of life. Yeah. Which is not an easy, I mean, being a bridge builder is hard. Oh, it is. Like that's not a, it's not an easy place to stand and say, hey, everybody, let's come, let's come have conversation, right? Because you, at moments, you inevitably get chatter from. Oh, yeah. 
both sides, both sides of the of, we'll use the bridge. It, yeah. I don't. Yeah. At, at some point, that metaphor falls flat. Yeah. Because, right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> because there are groups of people that are not separated by a chasm. Mm-hmm. They have come together and they do yeah. see things uh, similarly and have had these conversations. But yeah. when you when you are the bridge builder. Yeah. Sometimes you get chatter. Yeah. From from both ends of the bridge. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm either too black or not black enough. I've either sold mm. out or we're having yet another diversity conversation. I don't know why. Either I I need to go hard, harder for my platform or I'm told, hey, you people need to stop talking about white privilege because it's not real. You know, mm. I have people who very much in the black community don't agree with all the tenets and perspective of CRT, uh, but understand the the context of it. But then I have my friends in the white community who absolutely want to disassociate themselves and disconnect to it altogether. So yeah, it's, it's tough, man. You know, yeah. how much of what your mom taught you about <clears throat> my identity is in Christ. And regardless of what anybody says, this is who I am and this is who God's made me to be. And being able now to look back over mm-hmm. 25 plus mm-hmm. years of ministry, how much of that kind of helps you say, okay, Lord, like you've been faithful. Yeah. This is tough. This is hard, but, yeah. but you're going to continue to be. Yeah. Um, it, it gives me what she has instilled in me helps me have peace in moments of loneliness, to be very honest, Ben. I mean, mm. the position I'm, that I'm in, I have incredible friends like you and Nathan and, and Brent and Nikki and so many. And, and then my black friend, I mean, I have friends from all over the, the country, you know, that are really, really near and dear to my heart. But there is these moments where you feel absolutely alone. And uh, because you're trying to accomplish something that is hard for one perspective to really fully engage or understand. And so in those moments of loneliness, you know, I just, you know, ask God to give me a peace uh, and and to continue to refuel the passion within me to keep pushing because it is very, very lonely. It's frustrating. Sometimes I feel like for every three conversations I have. It's one that would just set it back, you know, for, you know, for more conversations. And uh, but it is it is helping me keep the main thing, the main thing, knowing that um, God is with me in always and that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so in those moments where I feel really, really dejected or lonely or still misunderstood, I go back to well, my mom reminded me of all those years ago when she told me I couldn't ride my huffy bike to school. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, man, I am, uh, I'm a big fan of yours and I know that I have, have learned and I, my perspective has been broadened by being Mm. in relationship with you. Thank you, man. uh, Over the years. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm excited to continue watching. I kind of get a, an up close. Yeah seat at what God's doing through you and your ministry and your life. And man, it's, it's been a joy to see, and I can't wait to see what he does from here. I'm thankful for you, my friend. 
And, Thankful uh, for you, man. And man, let me just say this, Ben. Thank you and the entire Lifeway student team for even taking time out to have these conversations. I know some people will have an opinion about it and everything. And I, I, I just appreciate you always uh, wanting to, you know, give platform to uh, leaders, good leaders, not because of what they look like, but because of what God's doing in and through their lives. And so thank you for that. And to the entire team, man, I have so much love for you guys because um, I know the true essence of, like you said, I have a, uh, I also have an opportunity to walk with you guys up close and personal. And I can yeah. truly say what you see is what you get. And for that, I'm, I'm extremely grateful. So thank you. Yeah, man. Well, it's been a joy to talk with you. And this has been another episode of the Student Mission Podcast by Life. We'll see you next time.